Back in the day, I was taught growing up that uh, there were some things that you did not discuss in polite conversation. Sex, politics, religion, money, I think were the four. Now, Jesus apparently didn't get the memo on that because he regularly and publicly spoke about each one of those subjects. In fact, Jesus had more to say about money than he did about any other subject in the Gospels except the kingdom of God. Um, he knows, right, that we think about it a lot, so he knew he needed to talk about it and address it. He knows that money is often at the center of our worry, and he also understood that money is often it's at the center of our worship. In fact, Jesus said, well, have you heard that expression before, follow the money? Right? We've heard that the last couple of years, especially with regard to politics. Um, follow the money. The logic is, if you want to know, maybe you're wondering why a particular decision was made or what was going on there, oftentimes, if you kind of follow where the money leads, you'll find out. Follow the money. Jesus, roughly 2,000 years ago, said that when it comes to worship, if you want to know what someone adores, where someone's heart belongs, to whom or what, what someone worships, Jesus said, follow the money. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said in Matthew 6, 21, he said, for where your treasure is, there your what? There your heart will be also. Let's read that together. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to know what someone worships, Jesus says. Don't listen to what they say about what they worship. Follow the money. You'll find out. You'll find out. Now, I want to go back to the Bible concept we introduced last week of the tithe, of tithing. And we're just going to spend a couple of minutes on this uh, right off the top. The idea is right off the top, that first 10% of what I make goes back to God. Um, it's very, I'm not great at math, but even I can do 10%. You know, you just drop off that last digit there and, and you get your, t if you make, uh, make $100,000, $10,000 off the top goes to God. If you make $200,000, uh, $20,000 off the top, it's pretty easy math there. But the idea is that 10% represents 100% of me. That 10% is representative that 100% of me in my life belongs to God. Uh, and about probably three, four years into our marriage, Isla and I were not, we didn't know much about tithing or anything, but we had a family that had kind of gotten out of financial dire straits and, and, and really got themselves uh, healthy financially. And they were believers, and they shared with us something about this. So we researched it. And we decided it was something we would do. And since then, we haven't looked back 10% or more every year since then. And it has been a blessing to our lives. But what I wanted to do, because we often think of this as something uh, just in the, like the law of Moses talks about it. And what I want to do is kind of a New Testament perspective. Uh, and even going before the law of Moses and then after. Let's look at it for just a second. This is on your outline this morning. Um, when it comes to tithing. So tithing predates the law of Moses. Right? Uh, Moses, Mount Sinai, all of these laws come down from God. It predates that as a financial principle. You've got Abraham, who was a tither. You've got uh, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, was a tither as well. Um, so it predates the law. Let me put it this way. 
is murder, is murder wrong? Of course, murder is wrong. Well, um, the fact that murder was prohibited in the law of Moses doesn't mean it just started being wrong then, right? And then after the, the, the law of Moses was fulfilled by Jesus, then it became okay again to murder people. No. Uh, it was codified because it was right, because it was a principle. Um, and the same goes with, you know, love your neighbors yourself or, or don't commit adultery. Those things, yes, they're addressed in the law of Moses. But there were principles at work before and after the law of Moses. So, I mean, think about this. Roughly 600 years before Moses ever wrote down anything about tithing in the law, 600 years before that, roughly, Abraham chose to give 10% back to God. And then hundreds of years before Moses, Jacob chose to give voluntarily, uh, under no compulsion, chose to offer his first 10% to God. They didn't give it because they had to. They didn't give it because it was written down as a law somewhere. It was a principle, right? Uh, They did because their worship belonged to God. Because if you followed the money, you would see God was in first place for guys like Abraham and Jacob and their families. They did it because they believed the Lord was taking care of them and would continue to take care of them. And they wanted his blessing, not just over their, their one part of their life or another, but over all of their lives, including their finances. Okay? So tithing is a principle. Just know this. It existed centuries before the law of Moses. Okay? And it existed after. Right? Uh, that second bullet point, going into the New Testament, whenever, and it's mentioned several times in the New Testament, whenever tithing or, or the tenth, Uh, the tenth part, whenever that's mentioned in the New Testament, its validity is confirmed. It's never said, oh, that was in the law, you don't have to do that anymore. It's always confirmed uh, throughout the New Testament. Uh, Jesus did, the book of Hebrews does as well. So finally, and like I said, this is going to be really quick on tithing. I just wanted to touch on some points. Finally, and this is just kind of a thought question. This is something I I ask myself, and I I would urge you to ask yourself. Look, if the Jewish people... Gave ten, actually, they gave far more than 10%, more than the tithe. There were other offerings as well. But if they gave 10% as an obligation, the Jewish people, how much more should I as a Christian give? Certainly, generous can't be less. Okay? Generosity can't be something less than 10%. So it's kind of a starting point there, uh, a threshold level for giving under the grace, under the, the amazing blessing that we have as the redeemed. I hope that makes sense, but just something to think about there, that question. A while back, and it's been a few years now, we took, as a family, we took a trip to visit some relatives who, who live way out in the country, and I was reminded of something there. I was reminded that there are, track with me on this, there are big differences between the city dog and the country dog, Right? The city, yeah, the city dog and the country dog. They're, they're, they're almost different species or something. Um, my dog, Jane, she is 100% city-fied, born and raised in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, a sprawling metropolis. And then we moved to Dallas, Texas, the Metroplex. She is a city dog. Um, and she's getting up in years, but she is still a great family pet, performs all of her duties as a family pet admirably. We love her. She loves us, all that stuff. Um, but she kind of lives, as a, as a large animal, she's a German shepherd, she kind of lives this cooped 
up existence in our house. Um, she has a very small backyard. Um, when she's out, when we take her for walks, she's on a, she's on a short leash, okay? Um, so, and our house is not very big to start with. So she is a city dog, which means simp- uh, essentially Jane has, has one uh, driving mission in life. City dogs do. Escape, <laughs> all right? If I go to the front door and I jiggle that doorknob or open the deadbolt, she's there. And if there's a crack of daylight, boom, she's gone. She's gone. And that actually happened a couple of times after we moved in. And finally, I had to install one of those door closers to make sure the door was never like accidentally left ajar or something. Because it's one thing if your little chihuahua escapes. It's another thing if a 105-pound muscular German shepherd is roaming the neighborhood terrorizing people. So, so we got that sorted out. But she is a city dog, meaning she longs for freedom. She longs to escape her confinement. Um, Well, that trip up into the the sticks to visit our relatives, we met Bo, who is a certified country dog, a mutt. Uh, Lives up by a lake in the Ozarks. One of the happiest animals you will ever see. That big old tail is constantly thumping. Uh, gets fed regularly, uh, comes in and out of the house at will, at will, is not compi- com- confined by any kind of chain or leash or fencing, wouldn't know what a leash is if he saw one. Uh, old Bo is free. Free. Goes anywhere he wants, whenever he wants to, digs as many holes as he wants, chases as many raccoons as he wants, um, uh, chases squirrels, takes a nap up on the front porch, his favorite spot, they're kind of worn out there on the front porch, takes a nap whenever he wants. There are no boundaries, there are no fences to hold old Bo in. Now the funny thing about this dog, as I noticed when we were up there, while there are no fences to hold Bo in, He spends, like I said, most of his time on that well-worn spot on the front porch in the cool shade there. Uh, Now, he has roamed a little bit, gotten in a few scrapes, gotten sprayed with skunk, you know, a couple of times and all that stuff. Happens to country dogs. But for the most part, Bo's happy place is there on the front porch of his master. He lives, really, for a pat on the head from his master, for maybe a part of a pork chop off the master's plate, Um, He is a country dog. Now, I'm convinced that there are, if you will, there are city dog Christians and there are country dog Christians. Um, James Bryan Smith, an author, author, got me thinking about this a few years back. Some view, think about this now, some view essentially at its core the Christian life as one of obligation as one of of rule following. And so life in Christ is something kind of oppressive, kind of of restricted to these people. Basically, a life of limits. Uh, They don't really feel free. Uh, Their faith is something that that cramps and confines them. Uh, Their their religion, well, deep down, they would like nothing more than to escape (laughs) the rules. And so these city dog Christians concern themselves very much with loopholes in the Bible. Does the Bible really say, are you sure the Bible says that? Uh, They spend lots of time thinking very intensely about the fencing, right? About the rules. 
Now, there are the city dog Christians there. There's also the country dog Christians. Uh, They've had enough of this messed up world. They've been knocked around a little bit, and so they are thrilled to hang out close to the master. They are thrilled to stay right there on that front porch. They don't even need a fence, honestly. Uh, they understand that it's, it's not their ability to walk the line that keeps them right, that keeps them safe. It's rather their, it's their proximity to the master. Now, the master's generosity, the master's goodness, that's why they're safe and sound through and through the country dog Christian, they know they are saved by grace, right? Well, what does this have to do with money? What is, for example, what does this have to do with tithing? I think it has to do quite a bit with it. Because a city dog Christian, you see, they will view tithing as some, some sort of burden, right? As some sort of obligation, as some sort of chain, as some sort of something holding and confining them. You know, 10% of my hard-earned money to church. Ugh, I don't know about that. A city dog Christian wonders, do I really have to? Is that obligatory? I think that's something from the Old Testament, you know? Uh, it's, it, it, they'll ask th- things like, okay, tithing, is that 10% of my net income? Or 10% of my gross income? They're, they care about that sort of stuff. City dog Christian is asking, like, is 10%, does that, is that just my church giving, or does that also include, because I mean, I, I give to some good works as well. Can I include that in my 10%? Um, and then there's the country dog Christian. So they see it very differently. Uh, at peace, under the cool shade on the master's porch, they're thinking, wow, my master loves me so much. My master takes such good care of me. He gives me more than I need, and he only expects me to return 10%. He lets me live on 90%. That's amazing. My master is so generous. What have I done to deserve this? This is unbelievable. That's really the heart of the difference. So, are you a country dog Christian, or are you more of a city dog Christian? Well... 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is going to talk to folks in the city of Corinth, uh, metropolis of the day, uh, upwardly mobile people, pretty wealthy congregation, it would seem, from what he writes. The kind of people that you would expect to be exemplary in their giving. And there's a little bit of twist in this, because as he writes to them, he points to an example of generosity that is... It's not a place you would expect to see generosity. The poor community of believers way up north in Macedonia. And he says, Corinthians, I want you to think about these folks in Macedonia, picking it up here in 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace God gave the churches up there in Macedonia. They have been tested by great troubles, and they are very poor. All right, there's poor and there's very poor. Uh, my dad and his family grew up in the Great Depression, 
you know, no indoor plumbing. Uh, my grandpa just worked a bunch of odd jobs. My grandma worked about just trying to put food on the table. Uh, most of the protein they ate came because they shot a squirrel or something, you know, or were able to eat. Hey, we have meat tonight. Uh, and an old guy back in my hometown who uh, used to cut my hair when I was a boy, Charlie Barker, used to say, hey, because he grew up there in the Ozarks as well, he used to say, you know, Wilbur, that's my dad, he said, Wilbur's family uh, invented poverty my family perfected poverty. Well, I, th I think the Macedonians perfected poverty. They were very poor, but they gave much because of their great sense of obligation. Is that what it says? <laughs> ah, they gave much because of their great joy. I can tell you, Paul writes, that they gave as much as they were able and even more than they could afford. No one told them to do it. But they begged and pleaded with us to let them share in this service for God's people. They, they gave in a way we did not expect. They gave themselves to the Lord first and to us. And this is what God wants. So we asked Titus to help you. So now turning to the Corinthians to, to help you finish this special work of grace since he is the one who started it you are rich Corinthians you're rich in everything you're rich in faith and speaking and knowledge and truly wanting to help and in love you learn from us in the same way be strong be great excel in the grace of giving I love that right beautiful image of generosity from some really some really simple people for whom life was kind of a day-to-day -day struggle. And Paul uses that example to talk to people in a much wealthier place. And so I wanted to just kind of work, and this is going to go pretty quick on the outline, so get ready with your pencil if you want to fill this out. If not, that's okay too. But I want to talk about kind of the grudging giver and the gracious giver. The gracious giver is obviously, we're talking about kind of the country dog Christian here, the Macedonian people here. Uh, the grudging giver is motivated by guilt. Motivated by guilt. Do I really have to give more? Do I really have to? The gracious giver is overwhelmed by how much the Lord has given them, and so, joyful, they're motivated by this joy, right? Verse 2 says that the Macedonians gave, quote, because of their great joy. It's a gracious giver, giving through joy. The grudging giver wonders how little <laughs> they can give and still be on good terms with God. You know, how many scraps can I throw to God and we're still good, right? My salvation is intact, everything is okay. That's what they care about, you know. How much can I spare to put in the plate. That word spare is a good word for that grudging giver. The gracious giver, this is the Macedonians here, they want to offer the very best, not the minimum. Not the minimum. It says in verse 3, they gave as much as they were able and even more. They went beyond. They weren't interested in minimums. The grudging giver feels obligated to give. And it's certainly not my intention 
last week and today for you to feel obligated to give. I think you're not listening, not paying attention if that's what you feel the sermons have been about. The grudging giver feels obligated to give. I mean, I guess I'll give if that's what Christians are supposed to do. The gracious giver is quite different. The gracious giver gives freely, not because of obligation. They're free, and they know it. I love that verse 3. What a telling line there. As Paul tells the Corinthians, look, the Macedonians did this, and no one told them to do it. No one told them to do it. They were just free. That's what they wanted to do. The grudging giver gives because their religion expects them to. Their religion expects them to. This is what is required, so I guess I better do it. Uh, the gracious giver, and this to me is the heart of the whole thing here, the great, because you're talking about that master relationship, that love for the master. Um, the gracious giver gives us a direct consequence of their relationship with Jesus, with Christ. And the Bible says this in verse 5, they gave, they first gave themselves to the Lord. First priority where everything else came from was this relationship with the Lord. Okay, the grudging giver, they're kind of looking for loopholes, you know, uh, questioning words and arguing about things and looking for loopholes in the Bible or, or their own financial situations to find excuses to give less. You know, things are not good right now, so let's give less. Um, maybe later, you know, I'm sure we'll get around to tithing once our financial situation improves. That's kind of how they're thinking, but the gracious giver doesn't think like that. Uh, they don't look for excuses not to give or excuses to give less. It's just not what they do. It's not how they're wired. Um, remember what Paul said? He said, they were very poor. They had, they, could, they had great excuses. Let the people down in Corinth give. They got money down there. Up here, we don't have any money. Great excuses, but they weren't looking for excuses, were they? Weren't looking for excuses. And then finally... Uh, the grudging giver thinks they're maxed out. They're always redlining, you know, financially. Um, I'm sure, I, I sure hope that, you know, those people at church don't try to get me to give more. I'm maxed out. And the gracious giver believes that the Lord expects them to grow. Not, they're not hitting the center. They're maxed out. I want to grow in this. I want to be, as Paul said, be strong in giving, in the grace of giving. So the country dog Christians, they live in the joy of knowing that the master has saved them, that the master loves them, that the master is taking care of them. Uh, the country dog Christians, they're, they're not stingy. They are not grudging givers. They want to share that generosity that they have received from their master. They want to share it with others. Oh, it delights them. The widow in Mark 12. Remember that lady? She shows up at church, shows up at the temple. Uh, Jesus is watching people give. So they drop money into the collection box, and there she comes, and she drops two tiny coins, two mites, two, two cents. And anyone watching would have thought, man, she isn't given very much. Jesus knew, though, what was going on in her heart, and he knew that actually she didn't really have two cents to be giving, but she loved God so much 
She was giving really more than money. She was giving herself first to the Lord. And Jesus said, look at that generosity. Those disciples that heard him must have become generosity. That's two cents right there. I think about Marjorie Lillard, who was this kind of believer. She was a, a widow who lived in a little rusty trailer in Neosho, Missouri. My friend, my, my parents used to drive her to church and stuff. Old Marjorie. Um, when we were raising funds way back when to, to move to Brazil to start the work in Brazil, I would have never thought of asking Margie Lillard for money. I, I knew that she lived on a really skimpy fixed income, but I remember the day, got a letter from her with a note scrawled out saying she was praying for the work God was going to do for us in Brazil. Paper clipped to that note, a check for $200. And I called my mom and said, what do we do with this? Does she have $200? And my mom said, hey, if she gave it, she gave it. Country dog Christian. A gracious giver. And I think when we get it, you know, when we, the gospel, when we get it, when, it when, when we get what Jesus did for us, is doing for us, the unbelievable plans that he has drawn up for us, I think when we get it, we respond with generosity. And not just with our money. Just generous people. So, Here's one approach you could take to giving. Let's see. We want people to give more. Well, we could spend hours talking about all of the good works of the Preston Crest Church. There are so many. Just talk about what we're doing here with children, with youth, with this, with that. Benevolent needs of the church that are being taken care of this family. We could talk about our mission field in Dallas and cover Dallas with love and all the things we're doing there. We could talk about mission works in Greece and Scotland and all over the place. We could do that. That would be one way to say, hey, let's motivate by giving, by highlighting all those works. Nothing wrong with that. It's just there's something bigger, right? Um, there, that's not primarily what motivates us to give. Um, there's something bigger, and it's not linked to the laundry list of good works that we do, um, that we're involved in. Why do we give? It's not just the mission. It's not just the ministries. It's the master. That's primarily why we give. Look at our master. Look at his generosity. His love for us, our love for him. That's where giving comes from. Because we first belong to him. Once upon a time, we'll finish here. Once upon a time, there was a lawyer in DFW Airport, had to kill a lot of little time, decided to grab a snack there at the food court. So she went and she ordered a Coke and she ordered some French fries. Food court was very crowded, right? Uh, couldn't really, once she had her food and got her rolling uh, suitcase there, couldn't find an empty table. So she pulled up in this seat. There was a guy on the other side of this table, but he was busy in his own little world. And so she just kind of sat there and, and set her bag down, put her coat over the back of the chair, and she began eating her fries and sipping on her Coke. And then the weirdest thing happened, right? Um, 
the other guy, the guy sitting on the other side, he had no idea who this guy was. Without saying a word, he reached across into her little box of french fries. He grabbed a fry and he ate it, made eye contact with her and grinned. Woo! The gall! Who does this guy think he is, you know? Um, how dare he eat my fries without even asking? But instead of saying anything, you know, she just, it's awkward, right? So she just kind of scooted that little box of fries a little closer, <laughs> a little closer. Had a couple more, took another sip on the Coke. And then to her complete shock, the guy stretched his arm out all the way across the table back into that box of fries, pulled two or three out, gobbled them down, looked her in the eye, and winked. Unbelievable. Does he think he's funny? Uh, has he never been taught, you know, what's rude, what's appropriate, what's polite? Just helping himself to the french fries twice, not even saying anything, not a, not a simple thank you or anything. Finally, the audacious fry thief just hopped up, uh, said bye, and, and took off. Well, her blood, of course, was, was boiling, and she's trying to process what just happened. How dare he? How incredibly rude. Uh, you don't just help yourself to someone else's French fries. Uh, this is a criminal act, right? <laughs> and after a few minutes of sitting there, and, and she finishes out those fries, and, and she finishes out her Coke, and she, she's ready to hop up and go, puts on her jacket, and she reaches down for that rolling suitcase. And there, sitting nicely on top of that rolling suitcase, is her box of french fries. <laughs> Untouched box of french fries. The whole time, right? She had been seething that this guy had been thieving her fries and as it turned out, he had been sharing his fries. As believers, we got to get that, don't we? We got to get that. Um, here goes everything I have is God's. Everything I enjoy comes from God. All the fries are God's fries, right? They're His. And he loves sharing them with us. It brings him delight. And he expects us to be generous with what he's given us. Jacob, whose name was, was changed to Israel, Jacob once made this declaration to his master, a declaration of love. Jacob said in Genesis 28, 22, of all you give me, I will give you a tenth. Of that hundred percent that you give me, thank you, Master, I will give you ten percent. This morning, I pray that we will respond to our Master's generosity by being a people of generosity. Maybe this morning... Your response to his generosity is just accepting Jesus, being buried with him in baptism, 
Uh, maybe it is thanking him in prayer with somebody or for a blessing that you've heard about in somebody's life and just getting together and praying over them and thanking God for that. However you need to respond, let's do that as we stand together and worship.